Hey, y'all. I'm from the South, and just for the record, in the last 48 hours since we have been here, I've had pimento cheese, yes, bluebell homemade vanilla ice cream, uh-huh, yeah, it gets better, about eight gallons of sweet tea, so if I seem a little jittery, that's why, if I'm like twitching, it might be the Holy Ghost and it might be the overwhelming amount of sweet tea that I have had in the last 48 hours. What is it, I actually don't know where I'm going tonight, so we're going to ride the wave of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about back there, but up here it feels really yummy. And I thought, man, when you title a conference Encountering the Father's Heart, and then, you know, you give that worship team a mic, I'm like, wow, this is, this is what Encountering His Heart looks like. This is exactly what it looks like. But... What is it, so I had this question in my mind, like, what is it about people in general, but the body of Christ that, how many of you love testimonies? Come on. I mean, it's like the coolest thing in the world, right? The testimony of the Lord, there's nothing like it, whatever it is, whether it's a soul getting saved, a deliverance. Do y'all want to hear my favorite all-time salvation story? I'm going to tell it to you. So there's this guy, his name is Stephen Lungu, and he was born in Zimbabwe. Bob and I had the honor of getting to meet this man when we were in South Africa two years ago. And he was born to a mother that was very, very young. And when he was five years old, his mother gave birth to a three-week-old baby. Now, I have five children, so if I need your attention, then I am going to say eyeballs, which may feel a little out of context. But what that means is I need your eyeballs. Okay. I'll only say it in times if it's like super important. Does that make sense? Oh my God. Seriously? Y'all are from the South. Like, amen. Yes. Like do a hanky at me or something. Give me something. Yeah. Come on. There we go. So Stephen Lungu, when he was five years old, his mother dropped him and his three week old baby off on a street corner in a very rundown neighborhood. He and his sister sat there for three days with no one to come and find them, to help them, to rescue them. After three days, he was found by um, a a person that worked at a local orphanage. And that person took him to their orphanage and dropped their baby off at another one. So separated him from his little sister. He goes to the orphanage and age six, he decides to run away because he was so brutally abused inside of the orphanage in Zimbabwe. He runs away at age six and he's on his own completely on his own, running around in the streets. At age 13, he forms a gang, which to this day is one of the most notorious gangs in all of Zimbabwe. So about the age 19 or 20 or so, his gang is just running around, and he is the leader, and and everyone respects him. Everyone is terrified of him, and they're getting, and they're bad, real bad, And so they have backpacks loaded up with bombs, and they're carrying AK-47s. And they're walking to this part of town where they're getting ready to cause some sort of destructive chaos and blow stuff up, I mean, people inside of buildings the whole night. And on their way to where they're going, there's a tent revival that's taking place. And at this, yeah, I know, you're kind of thinking like, oh, the glory of the Lord fell. No, 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 just wait for it. At the tent revival, they decide, oh, we're going to rig the bombs all around this tent. 
with 200 people inside listening to this evangelist. So they set the traps all around the tent in the middle of this tent revival. And Stephen Lungu gets up in front of his gang and he says, I'm going to go in and mock this guy for two minutes. And then in two minutes on my watch at this time, I want you to set it off when I come out. So they're like, they have all the charges set. They're ready to blow up this entire tent revival with 200 people inside. And he walks in the back door and he hears this evangelist talking about this man named Jesus, whom he's never heard of before. So he literally has some of the charges left to his bombs, as well as his AK-47 and his handgun strapped to him. And he walks forward in front of hundreds of people and lays them all down at the altar in front of this evangelist and says, I want this Jesus. Wait for it. The evangelist, obviously not you know, a little panicked, right? There's (laughs) explosive devices at his feet. Then mentions the name of God. And the moment he says the name of God, Stephen Lungu stands up, grabs his pistol, takes the guy by the neck and points the gun at his head and said, don't talk to me about God. God was somebody that he knew. God was somebody that he had heard people talk about. And he thought, if there is a God, God must hate me. Because look at my life. He said, don't talk to me about God. I want to hear about the other guy. (laughs) The evangelist literally has the gun held to his head. Tells him about Jesus. Gives him the full gospel story in front of all these people. Stephen Lungu gets saved that night. He gets saved that night, but everything in his life that he knew was now gone. His entire gang wanted to kill him now because he was leaving the gang for this Jesus. He was 18 or 19 years old. So he still was a wanderer, still was homeless. And at the age of 22, a white man. The reason why that's important is because in Zimbabwe, there was very much racial disparities at this time. It was during the apartheid days in South Africa, and the racial disparities were intense in this day. But this man comes up to Stephen Lungu and sees him begging on a street corner. And he's never showered in his entire life. Since leaving the orphanage, the man has never taken a shower. And this man comes and he offers to take him in. And Stephen doesn't really know what to do with it, but he accepts. But he's still a very broken, very wounded, very confused orphan. So the man takes him in and he does everything you can imagine. He steals from him. He screams at him. He does everything that you can imagine a 22-year-old who's never actually had a father would do to a father. Prove to him that you're going to actually leave me. I have power over you leaving me. After five years of this man not giving up on him, he completely turned his life around. Several years ago, he was in America, and he was telling his testimony talking about Zimbabwe, and he's preached all over Zimbabwe and all over Africa, for that matter. You can Google him. His name will come up. And he's got, I don't know how many, 13 kids or so, and has taken in multiple orphans around Zimbabwe, and he's just a prince of a man. But has told his story all over Africa, and several years ago, he was telling his story. And this man in a big cowboy hat is how he described him to us. He said, he, he came up to him after the meeting and said, man, I really loved your story. I'd love for you to share it some more with me. 
And Stephen Lungu goes, well, if, I, if you can just give me your business card, I'll get in touch with you. And President George Bush said, well, sir, I'm the president of the United States of America. I don't have a business card. <laughs> Stephen Lungu has now told his story all throughout everywhere, Parliament, on Capitol Hill, in the White House, all over the world. And he's the picture of a broken vessel that is now saved, healed, delivered, set free. Because one man in his life showed up. Because one man in his life showed up. There's testimonies like that that are just, there's nothing better than that. However, I look back at my life and I feel like the times where I've encountered the greatest power of the Lord is when the prayer is not answered and I still say yes. Okay, I don't want you to miss this. It's easy to celebrate the testimony. We need to celebrate the testimony. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's what gives us hope. It's what gives us resolve to keep going. It's what gives us the yes again. But what we don't talk a lot about in the body of Christ, is we don't talk a whole lot about the times when we felt disappointed. The time when, for me personally, my mother, I'm an only child, my mother passes away from breast cancer after I've seen countless people healed. And the moment she breathes her last, hearing the Lord say she wants to stay, And I knelt down at the foot of her bed, and I sang this song that goes, Give me eyes to see more of who you are. May what I behold still my anxious heart. Take what I have known and break it all apart. Because you, my God, are greater still. And I I look back at, at that moment in my life, And God's power that was perfected in my overwhelming weakness. But yet sometimes we don't like to talk about the miracles that don't happen. We don't like to talk about when we pray for something and it doesn't happen. Yet there's such a deep level of power in our ability to look at the Lord and say, I don't understand this. It makes no sense to me. But I still choose you. I still say yes to you. I still say yes to who you are. How many of y'all know what the Delta Force are? Raise your hand. (laughs) Delta Force are the elite of the elite of our military. They're the guys that don't really exist. Okay? Like the ones that you're not going to look up, you're not going to find them anywhere. That's the Delta Force. There are two requirements in order to be a member of Delta Force. The first requirement is you actually have to have seen combat. You have to have fought inside of a war on the front lines. Why? We learn most from the fight. We learn most from the war. We learn more from that than we do from the abundance. I had a friend of ours who's a business investor, venture capitalist guy in South Africa, and we were talking to him about another friend of ours that was getting ready to invest in some businesses, and 
So I was just telling him a little bit about our friend, and he said, has he lost any money? And he goes, I'm not just talking about a little bit. Has he lost a lot of money? And I was like, actually, I I don't really know. He goes, I will never work with a man who hasn't lost a significant amount of money. Because you learn more through the loss than you do through the gains. So the first thing, they have to have actually seen live combat. The second thing is something that's called the long walk. Okay? This is beautiful. In the long walk, the members of Delta Force that that are trying out are given a backpack that's full. It's heavy. They're given a backpack and a compass, and they're told to walk. They don't know where the checkpoint is. They don't know where their next break is going to be, and they certainly don't know how many checkpoints there are. They're just told to walk. So they walk, and up on the horizon, they see a checkpoint. They get to that checkpoint. That checkpoint then tells them, probably doesn't even say good job, You know, my, like, words of affirmation person inside of me wants to be like, you're doing so well. You can do this. I believe in you. Keep going. They're probably not like that. So they're told to walk, and they get to a checkpoint, and then they're told to walk some more. Okay, great. Now go in this direction. Now go in this direction. This continues on for 12 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours. No breaks, no sleep. 90% of the men that try out for Delta Force fail. The reason is because they see the checkpoint on the horizon after countless hours and think, that has to be the last one. Like, certainly once I get to that checkpoint, I will have arrived. I will be a member of Delta Force. See, all of the men that try out for Delta Force are physically able to complete the course. They've all completed all the elite of everything else in our military branches. They're physically at the same standard. But they're testing their resolve. They're testing their grit. Grit is my all-time favorite word because I think it makes hard stuff sound sexy. (laughs) It's true, right? Bob hates when I say the word sexy when I'm preaching, but tough. He, like, invented saying crazy stuff on a microphone. So I'm taking my word. They're testing their resolve, their grit. The 10% that make it are the ones that see the next one on the horizon and say, I don't care if there's a thousand more after that. I will have never arrived. I'm going to be a member of Delta Force. I look at our life so often and I think we have these standards by which we assume that people have arrived. We look at them and think, man, that's, that's it. That's arriving. There was this quote by Jim Carrey one time that I loved. He said, I wish everyone in the world could be overwhelmingly wealthy so they would just quickly know the fact that that's not it. That it's not in that. And somehow society has taught us to set these standards by which, when I reach this, I've arrived. But yet what we're missing is we're missing the fact there's so much beauty and joy in the journey. When you think about, when you think about the tomb, when I just say the word, the tomb, what comes to your mind? Jesus. For a lot of us, it's, it's the place where we were victorious. Is that right? 
It's like in, in songs when we sing about the tomb, it's like the precipice of the song, right? Like the ground began to shake. And all of a sudden you can feel the ground almost shaking beneath your feet as the victorious one defeated the enemy on that day for us. It's the moment, right? Yes? Just me? Yes? Just the tomb. No big deal. (laughs) What was the tomb for Mary? What was the tomb for the disciples? Even after the stone was rolled away. The tomb was the place where hope died. The tomb was the place where the enemy said to them, See, I told you, everything that you've seen was a lie. All of the miracles, all the signs, all the wonders, all the encounters, I defeated that. He's dead. I won. You lost. All of this was for nothing. That was what the tomb was for them. And I wonder so often if how after Jesus was raised from the dead, if Mary ever walked past that garden without feeling the pain of the fact that it's the place where Jesus died, where he, where he was laid. Not the place where he died, but the place where he was laid to rest. The place where hope died. Jesus told the disciples so many times, I'm going to come back. Three days later, I'm going to come back. Three days later, I'm going to come back. (laughs) Three days later, I'm going to come back. (laughs) See, this somehow makes me feel better about my life. I mean, can I get an amen? Like, Like Jesus himself said to them, three days later, I'm coming back. And three days later, here he is. They're like, who are you? The tomb is empty. What have they done with this body? Well, it's three days later. He told you he was going to come back about 8,000 times, right? Is that true? Doesn't that make you feel better about your life? Like the word of the Lord over your life, prophetic words. And then there's days where we're like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Is that true? Come on. Just, just humor me a little bit. Yeah. Thank you. He's like waving stuff at me. Okay, I talked about this yesterday, but it's fun. So how many of you have ADD? Oh, see, I love the people that are raising their hand proudly. You should be proud of your ADD. It allows you to multitask and many other things. But this message is going to be a little bit ADD. I'm picking on a couple of, like, topics. So can you just roll with me? Okay, if men, if if you're a single guy, this might be a hard message for you. If you're married, you're, you're like, you're going to track with me. Like, you got it. Like this, okay? And if you're a woman, like, we're good, right? Because that's w- the women's brain. So do you know that the man has a nothing box inside of his brain? So this is revelation to me. This should be like premarital counseling chapter one. When you ask your husband... Husband, what are you thinking about? And he's staring off into the abyss and says, nothing. He actually means nothing. Makes me so mad. 
I want a nothing box in my brain. I don't have one. I have falling post-it notes and 8,000 lane highways inside of my brain. All the men look at me like they're overwhelmed and the women are like, we're sisters. I want to talk to you a little bit about unity. It's probably my favorite subject to speak on. In Psalm 133, it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down the garments on the edge, running down the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded blessing life forevermore. From a place of unity, the Lord commanded blessing. Unity actually causes a reaction from God to command blessing down on your life. He cannot not create blessing in your life when you're working together in unity. Can't happen. There is this moment when we have five kids. Our oldest is seven. <laughs> ah! Uh, seven, six, four, two, and two. We should, tomorrow night, we should like have pictures of all of our children. Like, this is why we travel and preach. You think it's to like talk to you? It's actually so we can show off our kids. <laughs> like, it's just the truth, right? Like, look at my children. You have nothing to do. So I'm going to force you to look at them and I have the microphone. So there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) Yeah, we'll do a slideshow of our kids. I love this. We could FaceTime them in. It'd be awesome. Y'all would all want to intercede for us. They get it too. They've got six kids, six kids, right? Five boys. Wow. I know you should see their faces. Their eyes were all just like this. So I remember when we had our our first two, and they were 16 months apart. We had, obviously, our kids are all very, very close together, which, you know, causes people to automatically say, you know, all of the questions that come. Like, you have your hands full is by far the number one statement of my life. I'm like, I'm going to give out note cards and be like, please don't tell me I have my hands full. And then I come up with every possible cheesy line back, like, and my heart. But I think my all-time favorite one is when they're like, wow, you just, you just, re-, and our youngest is adopted. And they're like, wow, you just really must love kids. And I'm like, no, I really like my husband. <laughs> it's true. You don't actually plan to get pregnant with a six-month-old. Like, it's not an intentional thing, for the record. So our, our kids, our oldest two, okay, okay, I'm reeling you back in. I'm reeling you back. <laughs> our oldest two are 16 months apart, a boy and then a girl. And I remember there was this one day we were driving down the road, and our youngest daughter must have, our daughter at the time must have been probably eight or nine months, like just old enough to where she's really starting to belly laugh, you know, that age. And their car seats were facing where she was backwards and he was forwards. They were right next to each other so they could really see one another and interact. And, you know, sometimes we would get places and Ari would have, like, claw marks across her forehead from my son. But they, most of the time it was good and pleasant, but there was definitely lots of <laughs> deers. We separated them after I pulled over with a mouthful of raisins. Uh-huh. She's four months old. She has a mouthful of raisins. Yeah, I hear this noise in the back seat that's like, boop, boop. <laughs> like, 
you know, it's kid number two, so you're still kind of paranoid about stuff. If it had been kid number five, I'd be like, I'll check it whenever I get where I'm going. (laughs) So I remember I was in the Bay Area, and I'm driving down the road in Bay Area traffic, which, oh, is like the godforsaken land of traffic. It's just, well, maybe L.A. might be the, yeah. So I'm driving down the road, and all of a sudden, the first time ever, I hear my two babies belly laughing in the back seat. And I'm not doing anything to incite them belly laughing together. But I turn around, and I see my son has his little alligator animal. And he's figured out that if he rubs it in his sister's face, she will die laughing. Which causes him to die laughing. And I'm sitting there, and I, and I was so awestruck by my kids laughing together in the back seat that I had to pull the car over. And I just sat back and I just listened to them laugh. And it, it may have lasted three to five minutes, which at the time felt like this eternity. And I'm in the front seat weeping, literally weeping at how beautiful the sound is of my kids laughing together. And as a parent, I think of how many times a day I tell my children, stop fighting leave each other alone. Don't hit your sister. It's like, I don't say it in that high pitch of a voice. It's more like this low Darth Vader-y voice. It's like, stop freaking fighting. That's, that's actually probably more accurate. But there's times that happens where all five of them, if it's silent, it's, it's deadly. It's like real bad. Most of y'all are young and don't have kids yet. You'll learn. If all five of your kids are silent, real bad. Like something is wrong. There is nail polish in the brand new white carpet, or there is spaghetti sauce shoved up everyone's noses and rubbed in the brand new white sheets. Why I have anything white in my house or in my wardrobe is beyond me, but I keep trying. (laughs) So there's just this beauty that takes place. And there was this, there was this moment that I encountered the heart of the father. Okay, let me see eyeballs. Let me see your eyeballs. Good job. There was this moment that I encountered the heart of the father from listening to my kids laugh together. And I just thought, oh man, Jesus, how does this feel to you when we're living together in unity, when we're supporting one another, when we're calling out the golden one another? And I think the hardest thing to me about inside and outside of the body of Christ, but specifically inside, when we're not working together in unity and when we're on the opposite end of that spectrum and there's comparison and there's all that yuck, what we're actually doing is we're denying ourselves the ability to celebrate how God has been faithful in someone else's life and even more than that, denying the fact that God has been so deeply faithful in our own. We're actually looking at somebody else and going, oh man, I think it should look like this or I think it should look like that. And the truth is, is the majority of people that don't know exactly what they want to do with their life is because your life isn't supposed to look like something. There's not supposed to be some sort of a picture of a person with a microphone, a person on a screen, or a person behind a desk. It's not supposed to look like something. Like, what is it that you want your life to look like? It can look like anything you want it to look like. 
I watched this TED Talk. How many of y'all are TED Talk fans? Come on. They're just, I think they're awesome. I can watch them all the time. So I watched this TED Talk recently that was on PTSD. And it talked about how the guy who did the TED Talk was a, he was a journalist in the Iraq War. And so he comes home after three years of being in and out of the war, being deployed, and was a, was a journalist. And so what a perfect person to create this TED Talk, right? Because he comes at it from an investigative journalism standpoint. He comes home, and about six months after being home, realizes he has PTSD. Has no clue that he has PTSD. But because he's an investigative journalist, it causes him to want to learn more about PTSD. So he starts doing all of this research, and what he found was that in World War II, there was actually a very low number of PTSD. Where PTSD took a spike and the 22 war veterans a day in the United States that commit suicide, majority of them are from the Vietnam War to this day. Why? The Vietnam War was one of our first wars where they came home on airplanes. Their flight time home was significantly less than the World War II vets, the World War II soldiers who had an entire boat ride back to talk with their brothers, to process. When the World War II vets came home, my dad was actually one of them. He was 59 when I was born. Nobody believes me, but he really was. He was in World War II in the Navy. So I'm a dork because I could, I, could, I could be around like an actual, what the world would consider like a Hollywood celebrity, and they're like totally normal person, nothing like, no giddy. You put me in a room full of like soldiers or police officers, and I am a moron. I'm like, oh my gosh, baby, look, can we buy their lunch? Can I shake their hand? And Bob's like, seriously, you need a Xanax. Settle down. It's horrible, and it's so embarrassing, and I'm so aware of it. I'm like, oh, it's, it's bad. It's just real bad, but that's, that's how I am. I, I, I don't take selfies with them, but I just about would if, if I didn't. Anyway, yeah. So that's me with war and all those people. There was a reason why I was saying that. Oh, see, post-it note, falling post-it notes, that's ADD. It's a lightly falling rain of post-it notes in your brain at all given times. It's true. Y'all can laugh. So, but Vietnam, the Vietnam War was one of the first wars where they came back and they were spit on and people threw feces on them and they just, there was no welcome home parade like there was for the soldiers in World War II. I remember the first time I went to California and there were five men in the military uniforms getting off of the plane and I'm, I'm from Dallas if you have five soldiers getting off the plane, the airplane, the airport stops. Like the airport stops, people either applaud or shake hands or do something. And I was in California and I'm like, they're just walking by, like nobody's acknowledging them. I love California. I also love the South and sweet tea and pimento cheese. So this guy does all this research on PTSD. And he, he even did research on some of the nations that had the greatest levels of genocide, where people should be so highly traumatized that the level of PTSD would be overwhelming. But what's interesting and what he found is, is that in countries and nations, in third world nations, where there's a high level of genocide, there's actually a low level of PTSD, because in third world nations, everyone lives in community. 
community. Everyone lives together. Now, how does this relate to a message or a thing called encountering the Father's heart? I believe you find the Father's heart in family. Jonathan David Hesser, one of my favorite worship leaders and favorite people on the planet, all-time favorite quote, he said, the more heaven comes to earth, the more earth will look like family. Before creation, there was perfect unity in heaven. He actually didn't need us. It wasn't a need. I see the mother heart of God that longed to be a mother, that longed to have babies, that longed to have you. Community, family. These are values that our nation was founded on. So he did all this research, and that's what he found. That's what he discovered. The happiest countries in the world are nations like Norway, where they live in community. They work together. I dream of a world where we actually don't need nonprofits because people just serve one another. People just help one another. We don't actually have to create a government system in order for people to give to one another. People just show up. It's not complicated. It's actually pretty simple. I feel like this message is important, and what took place just now between the six of us was a representation of covenant and of family. And from there, community will be birthed. And all of the people that are standing behind them, all of the people that are standing behind us, all of the people that are standing behind them are now a part of that. That is community. And it is, I don't care if it's four o'clock in the morning and you need me to get on a plane, I'm getting on a plane. And we actually don't all know each other that well. (laughs) But I'm telling you what, life is short. Like, life is short. And for some reason, inside of community, we like to put this addendum on it that says, well, you know, if the Lord does something different, like, I'm here, I'm in, I'm going to serve, I'm going to give a commitment with this, you know, I'm giving a two-year commitment. I'm giving a five-year commitment. Like, how about I'm going to commit to run together for the rest of our life? I don't know why we're so afraid of making covenant relationships inside and outside of the body of Christ. Find your tribe and you'll find your call. You don't know what you feel called to do in your life. Who is it the Lord has around you that the Lord's highlighting to you? It's pretty simple. I tell our, we, have, we take interns every year and I tell our interns, <laughs> I'm like the opposite of pastoral. It's kind of true. I like, I don't, I, I just, it's bad actually. Like, when, when people are, like, processing their hard stuff with me, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I love you, and Jesus loves you, but thank God for my husband, because he cares a lot. <laughs> so bad. And I don't know if it's because of the fact that I, like, I, my job is working with trafficked kids and 
horribly abused. Like, I, I don't know if that's because that's my job and they're hearing, I'm hearing like that hype. Which the, the hard part in that, and I'm, this is like a random post-it note, but the hard part in that is that comparison can actually create an ability to have a stronghold created in our life. So when we compare, it creates this stronghold. And it's probably one of the greatest chasms in my life that I have to be super aware of. And not necessarily relationally with other people, but even for my own self. Like, how can I complain about anything in my life when this girl that I just got off the phone with You want to encounter the Father's heart? Man, go to the least of these. I don't, I, I don't, I tell my interns, I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to mentor you. I'm not your pastor. I'm not your mom. I'm certainly not your therapist. <laughs> I'm like, for the context of this, I'm your boss. But I tell you what, you come with me to juvenile hall to talk to a 14-year-old kid. Who's the size of an eight-year-old. Never known love in her life. You come with me there. We're going to experience God together. And I promise you, you will learn more from that than you will sitting down across the table. You'll learn more from that than you will at Starbucks. I don't know since when discipleship became about grabbing coffee together. Jesus said, pick up your nets and walk. Like, come with me. Let me show you. Let's do this together. And find out what people love. What do they love to do? And go do that with them. In mentorship, in relationship, the best times are the car rides to wherever you're going. Why? Because people who have pain have a hard time sitting down in a public place looking at somebody eye to eye. But when you're driving in a car and you're looking out the window, all of a sudden your mind just goes off in a different direction and you feel safe. Stephen Lungu's life is a representation of what one person can do when you believe in somebody. I don't even, I can't even wrap my head around the hundreds of thousands of souls that have been saved because one man kept showing up and kept showing up and kept showing up. There's no expiration date on relationships. There just isn't. If you don't have somebody in your life that's pouring into you, cry out for that. Pray for that. And in the meantime, tap into the Father heart of God. Let him father you. He's faithful, man. He won't let you down. And he's a jealous God. <sighs> Jesus always asked questions with a heart that was postured for the person he was talking to. So as you're pouring into people, as you're encountering his heart outside of this place, 
ask questions. But don't ask questions from like a, I'm going to try to man manipulate this conversation around to the right thing to get it to sort of somewhat, maybe I can talk about the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus inside of the body of Christ is something, it, it, it's, it's the name above all names. It is the name that which inside of this house we get to use freely. But don't miss this. It is a privilege to get to use the name of Jesus. And outside of this house, outside of the body of Christ, the name of Jesus should be like a rare gem. That all of the sudden, after connection and relationship, or maybe it's one of those miracle, Holy Spirit-breathed God moments, and those are some of my favorites, right? Where outside of the body of Christ, the Lord brings an encounter with a person, and we get to tell them about Jesus, and a soul gets saved. But typically, that can be the exception to the rule. Now, there's people inside of the body of Christ that carry a specific anointing for that, Every single person just about that they meet gets saved. And that is God breathing on their life for that. But what we can't do is we can't look at that and think, well, now I'm a scumbag because I just met somebody and I didn't encounter, I didn't, I didn't say the name of Jesus to them. It is the name above all names. Use it in moments when he's breathing for you to do so. Ask people questions. Get to know them. Get to know their heart. When you know them, you will love them. And your heart to serve them, to lead them, to pastor them, to mentor them, or to just be their friend will naturally be from a place of, I know you. Oprah Winfrey is one of my all-time favorite people. Her ability to ask questions is, is, it's an art form. That's why she was Oprah Winfrey. It's because she has, I'm serious, it's because she has actually has a gift of asking questions. Pay attention to her asking questions. In her very final show that she ever did after 25 years, it was just her and a microphone. She said, the show started with me, and so I guess I'm going to end it with me. And so for 45 minutes, she basically gave a sermon. And in the sermon, she said, <laughs> she said, after 25 years and thousands of interviews, talking to everyone from child abusers to kings and presidents, successful, poor, rich, and everything in between, I have learned there is a common thread inside of each and every person. And that is the ability to have somebody sitting across the table from them that says, I see you, I hear you, and I validate who you are. No agenda. They will know us by how we love. You want to encounter his heart? Man, go love the broken. There's nothing like it in this world. There's just not. I'm listening. I feel this overwhelming pride from the Lord in you guys. I look at, you know, in times of 
crisis and chaos in our nation. We band together. When the Orlando shooting took place, all of the sudden, for the most part, it didn't matter. Male, female, gender, sexual preference. All that mattered is that there were sons and daughters. Anytime a high level of crisis happens in our nation, after 9-11, the suicide rates dropped substantially. The admissions into psychiatric and mental health hospitals dropped substantially. Why? Because in crisis, we bind together. We come together in unity. We are united. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That is the soil we're standing on. And whether you're called to the nations or you're called to your backyard, right now, today, this is your ground. Right now, today, this is your soil. Every place the sole of your foot goes, and man, you're walking a lot in this city. Every place the sole of your foot goes, there is nothing that's wasted in the kingdom. It's a training ground. It's a launching ground. For some of you, this is it. This is that vision that you see that you want to throw at his feet at the end of your life. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. If you feel specifically called to this area, raise your hand. Can you stand up for me? Okay. Yeah, y'all can, y'all can clap. Go for it. Yeah, it's good. Okay, I want y'all to stretch your hands out to the people that are standing up. I just, I just feel this, uh, I feel this, just this reverence and awe of God and him wanting to honor you. God, I ask for a weight, an actual glory weight to rest and reside on the shoulders of those that are standing for this city, for this community, for these people. God, I thank you that they are called for such a time as this. That you have seen their yes in hardship and that you have seen their sacrifice. I just feel like so many of you have, have just sacrificed in order to be here. Like many of you have had to sell, I feel like you've had to sell businesses and you've had to leave family members in order to come to this place. And for some of you, you don't even know why. And I feel like if you don't know why, it's because it's not supposed to look like something. So, Father, I ask that you would deeply relationally connect, almost like a net of people for this city for such a time as this. God, we thank you for Athens. We thank you for the state of Georgia. We ask for the shalom of heaven to reside, God. We thank you for the movement that's taking place, for the revival that's taking place among the students and among the adults in this city, God. I actually see professors coming to know the Lord. Like there's a specific science professor 
There's like there's a specific science professor that's been teaching for many years about evolution and the theory of evolution. And I believe that God is going to encounter him and he's going to be reaching out. And you guys are going to be a covering and a safe place for him because he can't come out fully as a lover of Jesus until the right time. And so I see that God's going to bring people to you strategically, that this is a city of refuge, this is a house of refuge. So, Father, I, yeah, I just ask, because, because, of course, it's a sending place. Like, it's a given that it's a sending place. So I just ask for deep, deep, deep connection and unity and family. We just remove any loneliness, any lies from the enemy that says you're alone. You are not alone. You are seen. You are heard. You are validated. Yeah, we love you, Jesus. We honor those that are standing for this city, for this state, for such a time as this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's joy in the journey, you guys. It's supposed to be fun. <laughs> like, it's supposed to be fun. It just is. Are there hard days? Yes. Are there moments when you want to give up? Probably. But those are the exception to the rule, and that's what your community is for. Those are the people that are to come around you and hold your arms up. But it's the exception to the rule, not the rule.